Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I feel like I'm just waiting for grown up to come and hold my hand and tell me the answer to the problems. And then I realize that I am the grown up, which is a terrifying realization. But I think that's a space that we're all sitting in. So I think it's also going to take me sitting down and thinking really strategically about the gaps that I have in my knowledge and capabilities and bringing on maybe an advisory body to fill some of those gaps and also re-examine our legal structure and our business structure so that we, we can set ourselves up in the best way possible and then transition that group to a board. Great to be back with you here, as always, as we close in on concluding another big year in life and of humans of purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. They're doing a great job of all our social media and marketing work and making us look far better than I could ever do by myself. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Ashley Sreda-Jones to the podcast. Ashley is the founder and CEO of Raise Our Voice Australia. Raise Our Voice Australia are a grassroots organisation dedicated to amplifying diverse young female, trans and non-binary voices to actively lead conversations in politics, domestic and foreign policy. I love chatting with Ashley about the vast underrepresentation of youth and diverse voices in politics and how her inspiring and creative approach to this has been so effective to date. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ashley as much as I did. Ash, welcome to the podcast. So great to be with you this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think last time we tried to do this, you might have been globetrotting. Was it Zurich where you were last time? (laughs) I was in Geneva for the Global Shapers Annual Creators Meeting and then I had COVID. So at third time's charm, I think. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, no apologies necessary for either. I mean, you're doing amazing work, so it's just incredible to have a chance to connect, even on a lovely Sunday morning after we've had a big Victorian election night and some World Cup action too. Yeah, it's a, a good time to be thinking about change making. I think. 100%. Definitely uh, that sense of changing the air for sure. So, um, look, how we would normally start, I'm really keen to get a sense of um, how you got into the space that you're in. Uh, I mean, I know that you've dedicated so much over the past 10 years plus to, to advocacy and the amazing work you're doing for change. But tell me about the years before that and sort of how you discovered that that was going to be your journey or pathway. A very good question. So I grew up, um, like many Australians, in a very international household Neither of my parents were born here, neither my sister nor I were born here. And my parents had lived in quite a few countries before we actually settled in Australia. And when I was quite young, my parents decided that it was time to take my sister and I to one of the countries that they'd lived in, which was South Africa. That trip turned out to be extremely formative because I think it was the first time that I really came face to face with extreme inequality and extreme poverty. And I was only 11 and it was very difficult to reconcile that we could have such extremes coexisting in the world where we could go into uh, Soweto, which is where we happened to spend Christmas Day that year um, and then come back to the comfort of our home, of a comfortable bed, of knowing where 
all of our next meals were coming from, of getting presents on Christmas Day. And in that moment, I remember feeling acutely uncomfortable with the world. And 11 years old is very young to realize that you are not comfortable with the world that you live in. But I made myself a promise. And that promise was that I would never be comfortable living in a world where we did have such inequality coexisting and that I was going to spend the rest of my life and the rest of my career working to try and close that inequality gap. Arguably a ridiculous endeavor for an 11 year old who then was tossing up between becoming a Pokemon trainer or a human rights lawyer. So quite a contrast in (laughs) where I, I hope to see myself. But fast forward quite a few years and I was um, was and am fascinated in systems. And again, I grew up in a household where we had lots of conversations, not just about politics in Australia, but about politics overseas, about how the world functions to create and disperse inequality. So when I got to my university years, I enrolled in an arts degree in politics and international relations, again, very systems focused which I loved and I will die on the hill of my arts degree. It's by far one of the best choices I've ever made. And during that time, started volunteering with World Vision. So I started my career working in youth campaigning, working with young people here in Australia, age 15 to 25, to look at how we can take action on issues of poverty and international injustice. So very much using the model of acting locally in our communities to affect broader change as opposed to going and doing the whole volunteerism thing. That that was not the ethos Mm. in slightest. That taught me a lot about political engagement, again, about what good campaigning looks like, what good advocacy looks like, how to shift systems, which is exactly where I wanted to be. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously, you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. I went and did my honours in looking at women, peace and security, so the link between gender inequality and peace and conflict and how you rebuild societies after a conflict. I was then keen to operationalise what I'd learned. So went and did a master's in diplomacy at the ANU, which took me up to Canberra. So I lived in Canberra for five years and got back home to Melbourne during the pandemic last year, which was a choice. And while I was in Canberra, shifted a bit from the international development space to more the gender equality and the local space. So made that shift into focusing on young women, gender diverse people and politics here in Australia. Fantastic. What a lovely, concise intro. Look, it'd be remiss of me not to start with what is a Pokemon trainer? So as a gal very much attached to her Game Boy, a Pokemon trainer is not a viable career choice. Uh, Pokemon (laughs) Go was a good uptick in my aspirational career to be a Pokemon trainer. But unfortunately, I became neither a Pokemon trainer nor a human rights lawyer. Very hard Um, to become a human rights lawyer, though. As we know, it's it's surprisingly not really enough jobs in that space. No, but funnily enough, I've bumped into so many people in this space, and I was actually listening to an episode that you did with Thea Snow, where Mm. she also said she wanted to become a human rights lawyer. So I think it's interesting that so many of us in this change-making space settle on that 
as the way to shift some of these norms that we want to challenge. We look at law, we look at UN, we look at implementation of human rights Mm. and we go, right, this is it. But there's very few of us that actually land in that space. And for me, I didn't get into a law degree. I got into my arts degree uh, and I ended up at Monash University because I still had the option to change. But when I got into the thick of it, I realised that I didn't want to major in human rights like I thought Mm. I did. Uh, So it was an interesting process of, again, shifting my understanding of the problem and therefore shifting my understanding of the solution. And I'm very glad that I've gone down the pathway that I have and and didn't go down the law pathway. I think you made a great choice there. I I am also a person who started out wanting to be a human rights lawyer and did my master's in human rights (laughs) law as well. And then sort of you you do all that work and then you think, oh, there's not many jobs here. Um, Okay, well, I guess I'll do something else to affect change. Yeah, or even Looking at the international legal system, the difficulty in implementing some of the human rights uh, laws and charters, which is feeling very relevant in their light of, you know, MH17 and that verdict being handed down in the war in Ukraine. So, Mm. um, yeah, okay, well, nice to meet a fellow um, previously aspiring human rights lawyer. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) So Raise Our Voices Australia, why do that? Like, why was that the approach? And what were you thinking um, as sort of part of your motivational factors or reasons behind starting uh, Rover? I love this question. And the reason why I love this question is because I thought really long and hard about whether Rover was needed and what the right way forward was. So Raise Our Voice Australia is a culmination of my previous experience. So in 2017, around the first Girls Take Over Parliament with my co-founder, which was aiming to get young women and gender diverse people to quote unquote take over the office of a sitting politician for the day. And in running that action, we had two key aims. The first was to help the young people see themselves in those roles and ask the question, well, why not me? Being a politician doesn't really have a job description. All you need to do is show up for your community and represent them, theoretically, anyway. Um, And the second one was to start a conversation about the absence of young women and gender diverse people from parliament and politics. So that was in 2017 and I guess predated the modern conversation that we're having given, I think that kicked off really from 2018 with Julia Bishop being overlooked as the the leader of the Liberal Party, Julia Banks defecting, and then of course the current wave of conversations we're having. It was, um, it was also a tie-in of my experience in foreign policy. So, again, that background in international relations and domestic policy. So when I finished my master's in diplomacy, I was offered a graduate job in the Australian Public Service and I worked in a foreign policy role, which I've recently finished up, but also did six months seconded to the COVID response. And another observation I made is, again, young women and gender-diverse people seem absent from these spaces. So. I stopped and had a good think and pondered the question, how can I, Ashley Streeter-Jones, with my skills, knowledge, networks, communities, privileges, platforms, create a space where I can share my knowledge and share my networks and share my platforms? So Raise Our Voice kicked off with a training program. Um, I thought that was a a good place to start and see, first of all, whether there was a need, see who signed up to participate see who I could bring along with me in a professional capacity, so mentors, speakers, et cetera. Um, Surprisingly, it went very well. Not going to lie, it was hard. It's hard thinking it up. It's hard thinking through all the content. 
And it definitely wouldn't have come to life without the support of my wonderful mentor, Ritu Clementi, who did take me out to a cafe one day, sit me down and said, Ash, you've been talking about this for a while. Respectfully, are you going to do this or not? If you're not, (laughs) that's okay. But if you are, I get the sense that you're feeling a bit stuck for where Mm. to begin. You've got this big vision up here, but what you're missing is this in-between process. How do we break this down into the tangible steps? And she sat down with me every week or every fortnight and talked me through the process. So really, I I owe Raise Our Voice to Ritu. We then grew from a training program to running our Raise Our Voice in Parliament program, the second iteration of which we just wrapped up which invites MPs and senators to read a speech written by a young person from their electorate. So we've just wrapped that up for the second year where we've had over 100 speeches read in Parliament and in the Senate, which is pretty phenomenal. And then this year, again, taking another approach to the problem, it's great to give people skills. It's great to give people networks. But if you're sending them into an environment which isn't safe for them to be in, you're still not going to achieve that change and you're still not going to achieve that success. So we started thinking a bit more around this empower versus power model. We're doing the empowering, we're doing the training. How do we shift power systems? Mm. So we were doing a bit of a focus on that in the lead up to the election. Um, I will be the first to say that this year we bit off more than we can chew. And when I say we, I definitely mean I. That was um, that was my learning. And I had a great team who I brought on that journey But when you bite off more than you can chew, you're also not giving your team the best experience and Mm. you're not doing your cause the justice that I I think you owe it. So at the moment, at the end of this year, we're sitting in a thinking stage. We need to rethink our strategy, retest our understanding of the problem uh, and and build it up from there. Really well surmised. And so let's just delve into the problem a little bit. Um, And I think, you know, scoping and understanding the problem sort of gives you insight into why um, starting Rover was um, important. So youth, 4 million young people, uh, 18 to 34 in Australia, and really appreciate your very liberal interpretation of youth. I, I almost <laughs> might make it into youth, not quite, but, you know, a few years ago I wouldn't. So that's very nice. Um, and that's 15% of the population. Yes, just 7 out of 151 in the House of Reps um, are youth. So that's 5% representation. So you've got a threefold um deficiency in representation of youth uh, as to where it should be. Huge problem. Um, And the Senate, what is the discrepancy there in terms of youth uh, by population and actual representation? Excellent question. So I know at the last election we increased, so if we take it from under 30s, or 30 and under I should say, we increased from one person and that was Senator Jordan Steele-John, the WA Green Senator, to three. So we now have Stephen Bates in the House of Representatives, Jordan Steele-John, and joining Jordan in the Senate is Senator Fatima Payman from the Labour Party, who is 27 years old. So we're still missing a lot of people, missing a lot of representation. A lot, but but we're making growth and inroads, which is fantastic. Yeah. So firstly, uh, why the interest in female, trans and non-binary voices as sort of the target of the of, of Rover or the sort of the main focus? So it's the double bind of age and gender. Um, yes, obviously, young people are less likely to be heard, less present in spaces, but young women, gender diverse people are more likely to experience that, um, yeah, that, that double impact of um sexism or I should say the prevailing stereotypes um, and prevailing stereotypes around women in leadership, the prevailing stereotypes about 
women being more present in private spaces as opposed to public spaces. And we also know from much, much, much research that when people act counter to our stereotypes and the ideas that we hold about them, we don't welcome it, we actually punish it. So again, we see this constant conversation around women in leadership. And we've seen some really loud and really inappropriate conversations about some of our female political leaders. Mm. We've seen this really loud commentary in the media. Um, and this is where we, we really do need to shift that system. And one of Rover's key aims is to challenge the ideas that we have around women and gender diverse people in leadership. And it will be remiss of me not to mention, of course, that when you put on other intersectional factors such as uh, culture, race, religion, disability, LGBTQIA membership, being a First Nations person, being a migrant refugee person, or being from another traditionally marginalised background, those challenges, those barriers, those unwelcome conversations do get louder. So we do want to work with this target cohort because not only are they more underrepresented in political spaces, but we've got further to go to close the gaps in which they will be represented and also that their interests and their voices are heard at the highest decision-making bodies in our country. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. And I mean, I, I sort of saw that there was a focus on youth and then particularly youth and female trans and non-binary voices. And I, I think like, you know, it's really important doing something at scale like this to be specific in what you will focus on that has the greatest impact. Um, and I think you've really well articulated that sort of decision-making as to why not young men as well or why not young men of colour or why not, um, you know, called people or people with disabilities, mental health lived experience. So, yeah, that, that's a really good kind of considered response, I feel. Thank you. The other thing I'd note is when we were setting up Rover, I'm a really big fan of an ecosystem model. So what I wanted to be clear on is where are the gaps? Again, where is the need? But where are the gaps? Because there are some great orgs doing work in these spaces. And frankly, we don't need to duplicate. Those orgs are doing what they do really well. And what I wanted to be sure on is what is our niche and what are we going to do really well? So I'm really privileged to get to work with multiple other fantastic organisations like Women for Election Australia. She runs over in WA run for it, um, led by Ed, Ed and his team here in Victoria, the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition. There are so many orgs doing great work, but at the time there were no orgs that worked specifically with this cohort who we are having yeah. the conversations about women in politics, but not the next generation of women and gender diverse people in politics. Love so, it. yes, it's great to engage people that might be a bit further ahead in their careers, but young people are the group with the most at stake in the future and they're the ones most absent from having the conversations about their future as well. How does it? How easy is it, or how is it going in terms of collaborating um, in that sort of coalitions for change model, where it's sort of a partner model rather than just you trying to do everything? It's gone really well. Something that we're rethinking at the moment is how do we better collaborate. So at the moment, it's been mostly staying in touch with other orgs. Something I'm really keen to do is recognizing when our part of someone's journey has ended. So our training program is pretty entry level. The target audience is people who would not otherwise be able to learn about politics and policy. So it might be people who didn't take those subjects in high school or didn't study that in university or perhaps people who came to Australia as an international student and simply weren't given the opportunities to learn how our Australian systems work. But then if we get a young people a young person coming to us and saying hey, I really want to take this next step. I think I might want to run for office. We can say, we love your passion. 
That's not something that Rover can help you with, but can I introduce you to Lucia or Ruth from Women for Election Australia? They're going to be your best supports here. Or can I introduce you to Ed for Run For It? This is Run For It's zone of genius. They'll be the people to best support you in this next step. So I really like and think it's important to be able to refer on. And then as a change maker, also being sure in what your niche is. So we don't feel that pressure of mission creep and going, oh, geez, we need to do more and more and more. We can draw that boundary and feel more comfortable in that boundary because we know that another org is doing their bit of the puzzle and nailing that in the best way possible. Yeah, I think that's a really useful perspective on collaboration we could all learn a bit from, particularly the not-for-profit and uh, social (laughs) enterprise sector, uh, mission creep and also just trying to, you know, organisations feeling that they just cannot um, stay in their lane due to competitive funding pressures and the like. So I really like that sort of model that you're, you're talking about. I am interested. So, you know, when we talk about impact and what you're doing, it seems like an amazing impact to get 600 new submissions plus, 66 politicians agreeing to be involved in, in this process, and 123 youth and diverse voices amplified in Parliament. When we say this, what does this mean practically to have 123 voices amplified in Parliament, and what is the outcome of that? Yeah, good question. So it means that we had the speeches of 123 young people read in Parliament. Um, As we're going through our our current Raise Our Voice in Parliament campaign, I'm expecting that we will have probably a few more speeches. We've been really um, delighted and surprised by some of the participation, not saying that they were necessarily people we didn't expect to be supported by, but a few people that came out last minute and said, yeah, of course we'd love to support, which has been really nice. So we've had over 80 politicians this year. We'll definitely have well over 100 speeches. Um, And it's a good question that you ask. What does that mean in practical terms? We did get some really wonderful feedback from the participants about what it means to be heard and the importance of being listened to and also being validated and having your issue given that platform what we're in the process of doing now is doing our one year on impact assessment. So great. You give us that feedback at the time. Now what I want to know is how did that experience change the way that you perceive your issue? How did it change the way you perceive politics or your own journey as a change maker? So we've got some preliminary feedback from some of our young people, some of whom said, yeah, I absolutely, I got more involved in politics or I kept volunteering at the MP's office or I ran for a leadership position at school which is really wonderful and humbling feedback to receive Mm. but I think it's a good reminder that often when you run a program or you run a training the most important change doesn't necessarily happen there and then it's the ongoing impact of your program and sometimes the impact can take a good couple of years to come to fruition. We don't expect people to do our training programs and jump straight into the public service or straight into politics. But what we do hope to do is plant the seed and give people the tools and the networks to continue the conversation. So we need to keep measuring that ongoing impact so that we truly can measure the impact of our work and our campaigns. So I think, yeah, really interesting things to pull apart there are what are the behaviours that uh, participants do after having their speech read out in Parliament or being engaged in your programs or being in that process. And I think there's also the beliefs. So what beliefs and attitudes change uh, around people who do feel heard and how does that impact on their belief that change is possible for young people and young diverse people in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to write that down. That's a really good way of categorizing. <laughs> this, this is definitely not me giving uh, any uh, useful advice. I'm just sort of mirroring what you're saying, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, and so, 
I mean, what were the sort of key characteristics of the politicians that made the choice to be involved? Was there anything that sort of stood out to you to sort of say, look, all right, um, here are some things in common with this group that maybe we could sort of learn from or think about for the future? That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halvesies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Really interesting question. I, there wasn't really a common characteristic. So we saw a lot of participation from Labour and the Greens. We also saw participation from a number of the independents that goes um, pre-election and also this current election. So high participation from the Teal independents. But we also saw participation from the Nats, from the Libs, from some of the minor parties, so we did see quite a big cross-section of Parliament, which was really great to see because I don't think youth engagement should be a politicised issue. No. Every politician does have a responsibility to represent the young people from their electorate. That is one thing that they all have in common. Uh, the way that they engage with young people in their electorate might look quite different, but we're really pleased to see that cross-section of politicians and political beliefs across the aisle. Yeah, it's a great answer. I mean, as just a bystander with limited knowledge of this space, I mean, I would have thought some things that might be interesting to interrogate would be, did, were the politicians that participated uh, people who have kids or come from sort of large families? You know, are they in constituencies with uh, a high proportion of young people living there? Like, I'd be just really curious, what were the factors or survey kind of uh, insights around why they chose to participate? I think we do need to go back and crunch that data. One question that has come up during the campaign is looking at electorates with lower portions of young people, so particularly some of the rural and remote um, mm. electorates, where we maybe have had to work a bit harder to get speech submissions as well and work harder to actually get to the young people in the electorate. So I think that's a really good question, a great layer of analysis for us to look at mm. as well. and. When we have, again, a better demographic understanding, not only of the politicians but of the electorates, it will help us write a more targeted strategy for next year. So it's on my, um, that crunching the data of the electorates is on my forever long to-do list that if we were resourced, I would. But the Christmas break is a really good time to catch up on some of these things. Well, I'm hoping someone listening to this will realise the importance of the work and step up and help in that respect. So let's hope this goes far and wide. And <laughs> Please get in touch. <laughs> Please get in touch, exactly. And so maybe that's just worthwhile touching on because there are a few other things I want to talk about. But how do you do this work? Uh, what is the business model or kind of functioning operating model behind it? How is it funded? I see that you spent $0 in achieving these outcomes, which is... You can't even calculate a return, a social return on investment on that because you haven't spent any money, which is just incredible. Like that's bootstrapped um, impact right there. That's a very poignant question to ask at this point in time because my next major undertaking is to think about our strategic plan. So when I started Raise Our Voice, I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to work the way that I'd worked in other ventures. And prior to Raise Our Voice, I was 
co-running a social enterprise. And one of the reasons why I left that is that we weren't working in a sustainable way. And the impact that was having on my physical health, my mental health, the person that I was showing up as, always showing up in that place of exhaustion, was someone I wasn't proud to be. And I made a very conscious decision to leave that because there's so many ways that we can make the change we want to make. If we're not proud of how we're making it in a particular instance, being comfortable to sit with that and and being really honest about it and saying, well, that's okay. If this way isn't working, there are so many other ways for me to solve this problem. And Raise Our Voice kind of came up from the ashes of that decision, you could say. But Working with volunteers is always going to have its inherent challenges, the challenges of capacity, the challenge that people can't afford to make it their full-time venture, nor should they, because goodwill does not keep a roof over our heads. So we now that we've got a proof of concept, we've run our Raise Our Voice in Parliament campaign twice, we've run our training program three times, we've run a couple of advocacy campaigns We do need to shift this now into something more formalised. And the big question for me is, what does that look like? How do we set up a business model when we're working with a population who does not have a lot of disposable income? How can we separate our customer from our consumer? Hmm. Is that going into schools? How do you go into schools when you have full-time jobs and you can't afford to go into schools during the day? How do you just build sustainability into the work that we do we want to solve a really big problem here and that means that we need to be in this for the long term and to be in this for the long term we need to be working speaking honestly in a way different to how we're working now so that's something I'm thinking about for our 2023 setup not only how do we build our team in a way that is sustainable which builds in redundancy and will accommodate the fact that volunteer capacities will change but also make sure that everybody has enough meaningful work and how do we move to better governance I feel like I'm just waiting for grown-up to come and hold my hand and tell me the answer to the problems and then I realize that I am the grown-up which is a terrifying realization but I think that's the space that we're all sitting in so I think it's also going to take me sitting down and thinking really strategically about the gaps that I have in my knowledge and capabilities and bringing on a maybe an advisory body to fill some of those gaps and also re-examine our legal structure and our business structure so that we we can set ourselves up in the best way possible and then transition that group to a board. So that's a long way of saying it is a very good time to ask that question. It's something that we need to do better. It's a question that I'm sitting in at the moment, uh, but a really important one as we, again, think about taking on some of these really big long-term challenges. Yeah, well, all I can say is kudos to you for asking and really being in the thick of sitting with some of those hard questions and also being open to saying, and this is something I love speaking to young people with, is sort of sort of it's okay to say I don't have the answer right now, but I might in future and I'm planning towards that. And this is why for me getting actual young people, not myself, uh, people of actual youth on the podcast is so important and refreshing, I think, for me and our audience is that ability to just say, I think I know where I'm going. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to get there, but here are the ideas that I'm thinking about at the moment. What do you think? Yes, lots of idea testing Mm. Um, and learning to be comfortable sitting in the problem. Mm. Sitting in the problem isn't the behaviour that tends to get uh, rewarded. It's the I've gone out and done something. But I really firmly believe that we can't just do the thing. How we do the thing really matters. How we proceed in a way where we've 
everybody has a good experience. We're not making harm as we're making change. And to make sure that we're avoiding those pitfalls, we've got to do that thinking. We've got to understand the problem. We've got to put our impact measurements in place. And we've got to make that good, sustainable change. Absolutely. And so just thinking a little bit about some of the campaigns for change that have inspired you sort of over the years or that you kind of use as like maybe useful case studies or things to fall back on. Obviously, Simon Holmes Accord, Climate 200 and the Teal movements, the, the modern one, there's the voices for Indi with Helen Haynes, spectacularly successful. Do you think much about these sorts of campaigns or do you have other ones locally or internationally that you draw upon to sort of drive how you might think about creating change at scale? Oh, that is a great question. I'm actually doing some of that at the moment. So working with our research team, again, as we're post-election, while we're a non-partisan organisation, we thought post-election was probably a good time to re-examine and retest the problem, particularly now we're a couple of years in. One, So one of the things that we are and do need to look more at is what other campaigns are out there? And I had a great conversation with somebody recently about the idea of citizen-led deliberative democracy. And one thing I'm always interested in is not just how we can do current things better, but are there alternate models that we could be advocating for? So I'm always fascinated to learn about different models and different ways to do things. There is so much that we can always learn from people in different parts of the world, even in different parts of our ecosystem. And now feels like a really good time to be doing that thinking in the wake of that federal election and given some of these, uh, not relatively new actors in the space, but people who are taking some of these existing systems and saying, what if we did this differently? And I think that's part of what the Teal campaigns and Simon Holmes Accord did is they looked at the current quote-unquote rules of the game in terms of spending and where spending comes from in major parties. And they took some of those rules but simultaneously challenged some of those rules. So I love that thinking. I love people who are taking that status quo and, and not accepting it but asking how they can improve it. So it's always a pleasure to learn about different ways of doing things. It makes me really happy. It's very satisfying, but also a reminder that we will never stop learning what best practice looks like. We will never stop learning what good change looks like. And it gives me so much joy to connect with some of these change makers in the space as well. Lovely. Well said. And so in terms of the study and research that you've done and your engagement, what is the number one area of interest or topic of concern for young people today? Climate, hands down. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. <laughs> so that came from the wrap-up that we did on Raise Our Voice in Parliament last year. Our incredible research and impact team did a word cloud. So one of the questions that we ask people during submission is what is the issue or the issues that you care most about in five words or less? So climate was the resounding topic that came through and that was followed by equality. We're currently going through the data this year, and I'm quite interested to see if that has changed because one trend that I noticed this year is that there were less speech submissions about gender equality, but more about climate and cost of living. In a way, that's that's not surprising. But the question that I have around that is, why has that shift occurred? Does that have anything to do with the change of government? Are people looking at the election of the Labor government and going, right, some of the issues which felt more urgent under the Morrison government are not feeling as urgent now. So, okay, great. We we went some way to solving that. We can put that down for a little bit, but climate is still feeling urgent as ever. So I'm quite keen to interrogate that, but climate is the loud theme that has come through time and time again. Yeah, I just find that fascinating. I mean, for me, I would have thought, like, it's not a problem um, 
of the same immediacy as some things like access to healthcare necessarily yeah. or cost of living pressures um, that we all grapple with day to day. So it's quite interesting to see young people taking such a long-term mindset um, and being so future-focused, whereas you've got um, a lot of the, the the middle and the kind of the older crowd just being like, oh, well, climate change, you know, that's probably number five or six on the list. Yeah. In a sense, I think it is the most emergent existential challenge. I'm very conscious as well of the impact of climate anxiety on young people, but I do wonder, um, and I'll be the first, look, I was not a first adopter of TikTok. It's quite confronting when you realise that you're not the generation on the forefront of these trends anymore. But I think one thing social media does quite well is it's become a way to amplify some of these issues and connecting people with issues in a way that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm only 28, but this is going to make me sound ancient, that maybe I didn't have growing up, so I didn't get my first smartphone till I left school. I'm really glad I didn't have my first smartphone till I left school. Um, social media can be great with connecting people with communities. I found so many of my people through online communities. But conversely, how good are we at giving people the tools to act on some of these issues? I think the other question is, uh, and this came from another piece of research that we did as well, which we haven't yet published, where young people want to make their change. How much faith are we still having in political systems? And again, as we're having these pretty loud conversations about integrity commissions and anti-corruption commissions, is politics seen as a credible and desirable space through which we do want to make this change? Mm. Or are we seeing a lot of people choosing more grassroots and quote-unquote informal political spaces as the best site to make this change. So I think the issues that matter the most is one thing. Giving people the tools is another. And then the strategic decisions we make about the avenues for that change is, is also quite interesting. Yeah, I think for me one of the biggest concerns is trust and lack of yes. trust in politicians and the political process and that sort of leads to disengagement, frustration. It also leads to great things like the Teal Movement and other yeah. um, youth-led initiatives like Roba too. But the biggest reform I'm obsessed with is not the corruption commissions. I think they they have a lot of issues and they've not proven to be overly successful to date. I would love to see a register of pre-campaign uh, promises and then a, a register following that of how many of them were kept and then percentages and then being able to rank politicians on their trustworthiness. Um, do you do you do what you say you're going to do pre-election, post-election? Uh, for me, that's going to be the that would be a remarkable change and really drive trust right up um, across the spectrum. Imagine if we could bring that accountability to our politicians. Just love imagine, it. love <laughs> it, and, and and even and even sort of like um, rewarding or penalising those that don't, you know, making it sort of a um, some sort of breach or pecuniary penalty for for not delivering on promises that you said were costed and you you, you know promised to carry out to your constituency. Yeah, and conversely, the rationale for the decision-making. So I think it's one thing if you make a promise, and particularly if you're not from, say, a major party and, you know, somebody who's who's been in the public service for a good couple of years, have that understanding of how government processes work. And, you know, bureaucracy is going to bureaucracy, and the government is by far the largest bureaucracy in the country. Um, so sometimes making those campaign promises that you get in and you go, oh, actually, I thought that was going to be possible. Well, maybe it's not possible. I think it, it's okay if those things happen to an extent, but the rationale behind this is what's very important. And one thing that yeah. pops to mind that really stuck with me is a number of years ago, Senator Jackie Lambie went out to 
the public and said, look, I'm being asked to vote on this bill. I think it was to do with allowing mobile phones for people seeking asylum who were in offshore detention on Manus Island. And she said, look, I'm not an expert in this. To be honest, I'm not quite sure what to think. So I'm actually going to go back to the people. What do you want? Tell me how you would vote on this bill. Tell me why you would vote this way on this bill. I'm going to take all of these bits of feedback under consideration and then I will vote and I will come back to you and I will explain why I voted the way I did. And that really stuck with me because that level of transparency, accountability, representation is so rare so often in our political system. So how wonderful would it be to actually have that register that you've described so we can hold people accountable? And and I think um, the idea of the register would be that um, it would force politicians to consider the actual feasibility or viability of implementing those promises. Um, And and if they felt that... um, there was a risk to their scores following, then they might revise their promises pre-campaign to make sure that they were promising things that were realistic and not far-fetched. Yes. So, yeah, we, we could see a lot more honest campaigning because they'd be worried about what would happen afterwards if they weren't able to implement. So oh, anyway, that would be great. Yeah, just <laughs> just a, just a pie in the sky. Idea, <laughs> just a general uh, consideration. Um, yeah, so look, there's so much to think about, I think, in this space and so much potential for change. It's, it's incredibly exciting. So maybe you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, plans for the future, 2023 and beyond. Uh, it's going to be a big year for, for Rover and for yourself. Um, so key things that you touched upon sort of sound like um, strategic plan, governance sort of stuff, um, consolidating a funding base and sort of professionalising a little bit. Um, what else is on the horizon for you and sort of particularly around research, program changes um, and anything else? Yeah, so in the research space, again, we are going back and retesting this problem um, in the interest of pie in the sky ideas. When I was having the initial discussion with the team about, again, retesting this interest of young women and, and gender diverse people in politics and coming back to wanting to be in the space, looking at shifting from informal to formal participation, looking at this question of trust and ability to make change, I've now come to realise that that's probably a PhD level thesis. That's a really big research undertaking. So we've been having a conversation with a few universities to see if we can get a bit of support. Unfortunately, things like that are still part of the learning process and sitting in the messy middle. And I feel like we're sitting very firmly in the messy middle at the moment. I, One of the things that we need to consider for Rover at this point in time is who are we? We started off as a training organisation, but again, I I firmly believe in this empower, power. My background's in campaigns more than training. I love working in a campaign space, but is that biting off more than we can chew? Does that make sense for us as an organisation? Is that the work that actually needs to be done? So the longer I sit in this space, the more questions I end up with as opposed to answers. I think writing the strategic plan will be critically important for giving us those boundaries and stopping that mission creep. But again, so will retesting our understanding of the problem and where the barriers realistically lie. But again, overlaying this, where are we best placed to make the change that we want to make? So I don't want to presuppose where we're going to end up, though I will say that my main interest is how we shift from this informal participation to more formalised 
participation. I have an idea of why young women and gender diverse people are staying in that more informal participation, but it does come with lower power than more formalised participation. So how do we support these really passionate young change makers with these most incredible visions to make the change that they want to see and make sure that they are having their voices heard, but that if they do step into these formalised political spaces, they're not stepping in to survive, they're stepping in to thrive and they're going to be welcomed and listened to and acknowledged and make the change they want to see. So I know that's quite a fluffy answer, but it's deliberately fluffy because I'm sitting in that messy middle and I want to, I'm still learning to be comfortable sitting in the problem, but we are very much sitting in the problem at the moment. No, it's, that's so well articulated and said. And so as you go on your journey and sort of start to carry out the vision and take it to its next iteration, who are your heroes? Who are the people that you sort of look up to? You're part of a range of circles beyond Rover, so you must have a whole lot of role models to look to. Um, and also mentors, you know, do you have mentors? Um, do you have the right people around you to give you that support? So first heroes and then mentors. <laughs> So to be honest, a lot of my heroes are my peers. They're the people that I get to work with on a day-to-day basis. They're the people that I get to call up and say, hey, this is really hard. I cried about this today. And they'll say, hey, it's okay to cry about that. This is this is hard work. Um, if I try and name them, I know I'll start to forget them. So I'm a little hesitant to do that because I know okay. I'll jump off and think, oh, there were so many people I didn't say. But I'm part of so many wonderful communities of people who are so generous with their time and so generous with their compassion and sharing their information and their learnings. And I really believe in sharing, not just when stuff goes well, but when stuff doesn't, Um, often because that's where we find the most connection. And I know through my own journey, but also in, in looking at some of my heroes, people don't often relate to our outcomes because some of our outcomes can be quite unobtainable or they're an accumulation of 10 years worth of work and you've got a young change maker going I've just started geez why can't I get there or you know it's me with 10 years of experience looking at one of my mentors and going oh geez you have 30 years of experience under your belt why can't I get there but the one thing that we all have in common is again I know I keep saying it but the messy middle everybody has sat in the messy middle everybody has learned from the messy middle so I'm a really big believer in sharing my messy middle. And that's actually where I've connected with some of my greatest heroes and some of my favorite change makers, because that's the bit that we have all been through, regardless of where we're going. So I'm very, very, very grateful to get to be friends with some of my heroes, but also hopefully get to be one of their cheerleaders as well. Very well said. Been a lovely conversation. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your inspiring and important work? So I am on Instagram. It's at activist.ash. And you can also find us on at Raise Our Voice Oz on Instagram, at Raise Our Voice Oz on TikTok, which I'm currently learning, which is making me feel so old, but we are there. Um, and also Raise Our Voice Oz on LinkedIn and Ashley Streeter Jones on LinkedIn. And your website? And my website is www.ashleystreeterjones.com. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Stick around for a minute. We'll have a quick debrief. Great. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? 
If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.